all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class. Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Stop, drop from Uh oh. I think I see the sign. Yep. That's definitely the sign. Guess that means it's the time. Feels like it anyway. Time for what, I'm pretending you just asked? Time for Ronnie James Dio, part fünf. Which just means five in German, but it's fünf if you're nasty. And I know you are, you beautiful mother punchers, so welcome to And Volume For All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your neighborhood hostel worker, Quinn. And while I do deliver the mail, in the case of Ronnie James Dio, it's most likely chain mail. Because, you know, a full suit of plate is really heavy, and I don't know if they made those in size 4T. We have so very much to get to today, so I want to dive right in to mob rules and then immediately backstroke straight to heaven and hell, because there's still a bunch of stuff that I didn't cover. My apologies to Rob Marr. He's one of my friends on Metal Twitter, and Mob Rules is Rob Marr's favorite album. So he asked me to, you know, speed it along, and I... Wait a minute. Mob Rules? Rob Marr? I just realized that if you switch the first letters in his first and last name, it spells Mob Rar. Okay, never mind. And now it's going to take us even longer to get there, Rob. No one to blame but yourself. Despite the tangent that Rob just led us all into, I want to make sure that Heaven and Hell gets its proper due. Because it's not just a couple of tracks on a solid album. The record is damn near perfect. Last episode, I played Neon Nights for You and the follow-up track on the album Children of the Sea. And a very heartfelt thank you to everyone who reached out about that portion of the episode in particular. I appreciate being able to vomit my emotional trauma at you on occasion, and so many of you replied with great kindness and empathy. Some even sharing stories of their own which were heartening and moving and managed to stave off the inescapable prison of human loneliness and sorrow that I experience on a daily basis for just a little under a week. So, thank you for being willing to connect through this music that we all love on a really unique level for this podcast. And I would say a unique level for any podcast. You have all made this whole stupid endeavor of mine into more than I ever imagined it could be. And for that, I am truly, genuinely grateful. So as Eddie Vedder once said, free cookie dough swirls all around. Or rather... I mean, I know what you're asking for, but when that's how you order, God knows what you're going to get, Eddie. We also covered the title track to Heaven and Hell fairly extensively, but sandwiched right in between that second and fourth track is the damn near part of my description of the album as damn near perfect. Lady Evil, for me, falls into the same category as Starstruck, Tarot Woman, et al. 
as a warning about the inherent pitfalls of a Bumble account. The music is mediocre at best, and the lyrics are just inane vestiges of the douche rock virus he picked up from Richie Blackmore, which is why you don't share groupies. Honestly, if it weren't for the third track on Heaven and Hell, Sabbath's ninth studio record might have boasted the best A-side since maybe even Paranoid. It's just that good. But like all great things in life, a woman comes along and just ruins it. Am I right, guys? Incel faux life. I don't know. The B-side of the album leads off with a song that for some time also fell into that category, but as of like a year ago, I did a 180 on Wishing Well. It's got a killer chorus, and Iomi Solo has a similar effect that I don't think he used since the debut. It's really haunting and ethereal, and there are just some fantastic emotionally and philosophically complicated lyrics from Dio that I was clearly not paying attention to. I just thought it was a dumb song about a magic well because I'm a lazy idiot. So needless to say, I am back on board with that one. But the song that follows the opening of the B-side, <laughs> the opening of the B-side, that's dirty if you think about it, which I don't recommend, is an example of something really rare and wonderful that happens from time to time throughout the history of art. When something new gives context to that which came before it, and by reframing an earlier and decidedly mediocre effort as a kind of intermediate stage on the journey towards something far more sublime, manages to shine a redemptive glimmer of light on what was otherwise an irredeemable creative failure. Remember technical ecstasy? When Iomi started producing, and to Ozzy's contention, overproducing Sabbath in a misguided effort to sound more like foreigner, as if that were somehow a virtue? Well, Sabbath's manager at the time, Donald J. Arden, was focusing his efforts on the chart successes of the band Electric Light Orchestra, who he also managed. We need a whole orchestra of light, okay? And they should be powered by electricity. Clean, beautiful electricity like you've never seen before. You've never seen electricity before. It's going to be a number one hit on the Billabong Award charts. The biggest charts in the history of anything that's ever charted. Uh-oh. I think I just charted myself. I'm going to excuse me to the restroom where I can assure you I won't be resting. Clean up on aisle dawn. In what was... I don't know. I don't know. All I can tell you is that the weird train, it makes very few stops. In what was perhaps Iomi's attempt to keep Sabbath relevant, Technical Ecstasy was given a decidedly more AOR-centric sound, including a heavy dose of such unheavy elements as the keyboard and synthesizer. But it didn't work. Like, a lot. And my suspicion is that it didn't work because Iomi's heart just wasn't really in it. He made the music that he is known for making for a reason. Heavy was his natural habitat, and technical ecstasy was like trying to reintroduce a giraffe back into the wilds of Minnesota. Like, it could go okay, but it's kind of an odd fit and most likely doomed to be a horrible failure. Hey, Jerry, I don't see your car in the lot today. Oh, no, I ride my giraffe to work on Fridays to cut down on the carbon emissions, you know. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Where's your giraffe, then? Oh, he's frozen dead now. Gotta get a new giraffe every week, you know. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
for me. I said I don't know, Terrence. I don't know. For me, the third single off of Heaven and Hell reaches back to that time in Iomi's ecstatic experimentation with the technical that, for lack of a less repetitive term, synthesizes that particular sound back into the heaviness that seemed always to be his destiny. And here it is, Die Young, another cosmic warning from Dio about the mortal perils of lusting for eternal and fatal youth, and I think the tiniest glint of redemption for technical ecstasy, a myopic creative experiment whose time, perhaps, had just not yet come. followed by what I think of as the adult version of Lady Evil. I say adult because it's a far more serious treatment of the subject, not because it's about anything pornographic like opening up the B-side. Huh. I didn't think I'd find another place to use that. The original title of the song was Lord She's Handsome, which is also the first lyric, and at least the second time Dio describes a woman as handsome in his body of work. The first being that hoochie-coochie lady that Dio tried unsuccessfully to get off the street. Handsome seems like a weird adjective to use in describing a woman. But the word comes from Middle English, and pre-1700s, it was used almost exclusively as a descriptor of feminine qualities. So while it kind of makes Dio sound like your grandpa calling his couch the Davenport, it's actually older than that. Calling a lady handsome isn't dated. It's like carbon dated. And another example of Dio's predilection for classic literature. Plus, in English, we don't assign gender to our adjectives as gender is a social construct often erroneously or deliberately conflated with biological dimorphism for political purposes. And you brought this on yourself, Rob Marr. You brought this on yourself, and I really need you to think about your choices. But the final word of the album is not handsome. No, lonely is the word. And it's the somber and towering final track off of Heaven and Hell, an unassailable closing argument for the undisputed designation of one Tony Frank Iommi Jr. as the greatest guitarist in the history of heavy fucking metal. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Back to the Future, on the evening of August 19, 1980, Bill Ward played his final show on the Heaven and Hell tour at the Met Center in Minnesota, after which he hopped on what was thought to be a dead giraffe in the parking lot and rode triumphantly off into the snow set. What a weird show I have. I can't really pin this one on Rob Marr, but I will try. After Cozy Powell declined Sabbath's offer to replace Ward on the drums, creating an alternate timeline I desperately wish I lived in, the band found Ward's successor in a young drummer for a band called Bomf, short for Back on My Feet. But yeah, Bomf is much better, just rolls off the tongue, Bomf does. They were actually John Lennon's live backup band toward the end of his life. And if you've never done acid but just want to know what it's like, you can Google John Lennon, a salute to Sir Lou, and watch Bomf back up the Beatles legend for what would be his final live performance. For some reason, they're all dressed in what look like black silk onesies and wearing bald caps with semi-realistic human faces on the back of their heads, so it appears as if they all have two faces, while John Lennon sings Imagine to a black tie gala of what are now mostly dead Englishmen. Yeah, it's some David Lynch-level shit, but it's less that the video itself is weird and more that you're now weird for having watched it and nothing you do, say, or experience will ever feel normal again. A salute to Sir Lou, in case you, you, know, you want to write that down. But the drummer for Bomf had recently declined an offer from Sharon Osbourne to join the expedient gang of musicians that she was putting together for a new Ozzy Osbourne solo project called Blizzard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, that's not going anywhere but was talked out of accepting by his brother and the backup drummer for Rod Stewart, Carmine Apice. Carmine's brother, Vinnie Apice, 
accepted Iomi's offer to finish out the Heaven and Hell tour with a quiet understanding that all parties were anticipating the eventual return of Bill Ward. Less sure about the giraffe. And if it sounds to you like I mispronounced one of the brothers' last names just now, you might want to get your ears checked, Rob, because they both pronounce it differently. Eventually, the Apis or Apice brothers turned the discrepancy into a bit and a marketing gimmick for their Drum Wars video series, but the origin of the dueling denominations came when Rod Stewart asked Carmine to settle on the pronunciation of Apis, and Carmine agreed. And Vinny did not. It sounds kind of silly, but there is fairly good evidence that Rod Stewart has a history of turning brother against brother as he did in the American and Spanish Civil Wars, the Korean War, Brexit, and that time everyone on Facebook was fighting about the color of a dress. It was black and blue, by the way, no matter what the white and gold revisionists will tell you. But yeah, all Rod Stewart's fault. Killing for a piece, eh? Something I don't understand. Meanwhile, Bill Ward did not return to the band, and by early the next year, Sabbath were getting ready to go back into the Sausage Factory and make another album. And this is where tiny cracks start to appear in the second iteration of Black Sabbath. Warner Brothers, having recently reconciled their differences over a dispute caused by Rod Stewart, in their infinite wisdom offered Ronnie James Dio a record contract, but as a solo artist which was probably not conducive to group morale. And you know, you hear so many stories about why bands that made incredible music together and in this case against such unlikely odds choose to part ways when it is so plainly obvious that the formula they are working with is something they ought not fuck up. And I would venture that most of these stories boil down to a fairly simple equation. And I think it is this. Individual ego fueled by and quantified as money. I'd always understood the departure of Dio from Black Sabbath to be the result of the production process for their live album titled Live Evil, which we'll get to. And while it certainly seems like the petty grievances that emerged during that time were a significant contributing factor to the dissolution of Dio Sabbath, those two, I think, fall squarely under the purely subjective valuation of an individual's worth, translated into a numeric value, and placed behind a dollar sign. For those of you who managed to listen all the way through the episodes, you know that I love to wax just a touch poetic or dramatic the nearer we come to the end. I always consider those little philosophical codas as my reward for editing out all the mouth sounds. But if you will indulge me here for just a minute, I like to engage from time to time in the wholly imaginary interrogation of my musical heroes because just enjoying the music isn't really in my skill set. And I would love to ask Tony Iommi now, in 2024, Happy New Year, by the way, how much is an album worth to him? And, And not just any album, but an album in 1983. It's been 14 years now since Dio's passing, and if we can accept my formula for the ego's equivalence to a designated amount of cash, how much would Tony Iommi pay for the chance to make a third record with Ronnie James Dio to immediately follow Mob Rules? We all know that Iommi is both the creative and financial force behind Sabbath. He's both the James and Lars all rolled into one. Whoa, that's cursed. So he would be the best man to answer the question, was it worth it? If Dio is being offered a solo record deal by Warner Brothers, 
then presumably the anthropomorphic walrus in a top hat who runs that company has decided that he is an artistic endeavor that is worth spending their clamshells on. But if he's part of Black Sabbath, that might just mean that the sand dollars Walthrop J. Whiskers III has set aside for the band gets divvied up a bit differently than it would were Iommi to bring someone new into the band, into his band, which Black Sabbath has always been. So was the difference between Iommi's share of the pie with Ronnie James Dio in the group versus the presumably larger share he might procure with a different vocalist fronting Sabbath worth it in 1983? How about in 2024? How much money do you think Tony Iommi would pay now if he could go back in time and make another Sabbath record with Ronnie James Dio in 1983? You know, whatever your opinions of Sabbath's follow-up to their 10th studio album, 1983's Born Again, featuring former Deep Purple frontman Ian Gillen on vocals, and as much as Dio's tenure is cited as the band's definitive departure from the legacy of their sound, Almost no one will argue with the fact that after Mob Rules, Black Sabbath, as the world had known it, became something else. The timelines branched once again, and in some parallel universe, there is a third consecutive Dio-fronted Sabbath album that we will never hear. And I know a lot of my friends on Metal Twitter and listeners of this show will argue that Born Again is an underrated, overlooked gem in the catalog. And it charted very well at the time, going to number four in the UK, likely a result of the supergroup hype brought in by the inclusion of Ian Gillen. But Born Again is also the first album in Black Sabbath's discography that fails to achieve any certification in any country on Earth. And since we're quantifying artistic value in terms of numbers today, which I lay squarely at the feet of Rob Marr, Heaven and Hell sold roughly 3.5 million records. Mob Rules sold nearly 2 million. Born Again, even with the influx of Ian Gillen devotees hyped for a new record from him and music nerds salivating at the idea of a Deep Sabbath supergroup, manages to sell a little over a million copies. A feat that Sabbath would, as I think a result of Born Again's weakness, fail to achieve on their next four albums. In fact, Sabbath crosses the one million mark only two more times in the band's history, once in 2013 upon reuniting with Ozzy Osbourne, and once in 1992 after rejoining with Ronnie James Dio. I'm not going to shit on my friends who love Tony Martin Sabbath or Ian Gillen Sabbath or even Glenn Hughes Sabbath mostly because there aren't any of those. But when you chart Black Sabbath's career arc and their significance to the genre of heavy metal as a purely numerical value, there are only two incarnations of the band that managed to consistently capture the attention of their larger audience, beyond us freaks who just worship at the altar of all things Iomi. One of those incarnations is fronted by Ozzy Osbourne, the other by Ronnie James Dio, and there is just no one else. Iommi is the only person who can answer the question of whether or not it was worth it to let go of Dio. And ultimately, we can't know the answer to that question unless he's listening and wants to DM me, in which case, I love your work. But I think the answer does come to us eventually, in the form of their two remaining collaborations, 1992's Dehumanizer and 2009's The Devil You Know. And we will eventually get to those records, but not today. Because today, I don't make the rules. Today is the day 
I listen to fools. Poor Rob. He just wants to hear his favorite album. And instead, here I am putting the end of the episode at the beginning and going on about Rod Stewart igniting global conflicts from the back of a frozen giraffe. Well, Mob, Rob, well, Rob, as I said at the top of the show, but actually mean right now, it feels like the time, my friend. So we're going to get into the 10th studio album from Black Sabbath after I take a little break to let my Texas instrument cool off after all the number crunching. Close the city. Tell the people. Something is coming to call. When we come back. In a 2021 interview with Hard, Heavy, and Hair, also the nicknames of the last three women I dated before I met my wife, Vinny Apice talked about the writing process for an upcoming album, saying, The writing process is the same as it was on the early records, the Dio records and the Sabbath records, Mob Rules and Dehumanizer. You know, it's nice to do an American accent once in a while. I mean, I love the Brits, but I also love the letter R. Anyway, Apice continued, we get in a room, we jam, we jam some riffs. So we put it together by jamming, by playing together. Nobody came in with the song. Nobody came in and said, hey, I got this song called The Mob Rules. And it goes like this. Tony played the riff, I jam in there, and then we build it together. Oh man, talking Sabbath in a New York dialect? Your boy could get used to this. They originally rented a house in Los Angeles, but Iommi wasn't happy with the sound of his guitar, so they eventually ended up back at the record plant, where just shy of a decade earlier, the band had recorded their fourth album, Volume 4. It must have been a strange experience for Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler to return to that particular studio for the first time without Ozzy or Bill in the room. As we talked about in the series on Sabbath's original lineup, the record plant was the first time the band recorded outside of England, where they found themselves blinded to the external world through the overabundant combination of sunshine and snow. As a result, Geezer turned his perspicacious doom gaze inward, authoring lyrics that found the eternal horrors of the universe coming from within, rather than, as they had on the three previous records, without. This was where everything began to change for Black Sabbath, and no, I'm still not going to say it. 
Nearly 10 years later, here they found themselves again, preparing to write their sophomore album with a new lineup. The last time they had an unexpected success with a debut and returned to the studio to write a follow-up, they completely remade the world of rock and roll with one of the greatest albums ever recorded, Paranoid. And I wonder if the ghosts of that particular magnum opus weren't hovering in the summer shadows of the record plant in 1981. Iomi, a historically droll figure in metal, seems to have had the worst time of it. Geezer was just happy that Vinny Apice worked out so well, and with Dio writing the lyrics, he had more time to experiment with his bass tone, and hey, if Geez is happy, Weeze is happy. But in 2009, Iomi told John Wiederhorn of Loudwire, and again, I choose weed. Every time. I was so used to playing with Bill, it was hard for me. I would look at Vinny's kit, and it was a quarter of the size of Bill's kit. It just looked absolutely ridiculous. And we had this little baby kit of drums. And I just went, fucking hell. And in 1992, he told Guitar World, Mob Rules was a confusing album for us. We started writing songs differently for some reason and ended up not using a lot of really great material. Okay, one, everything you're saying is the opposite of what everyone else is saying, Tony. It's like the band went to Disneyland and 10 years later you just started mumbling to random journalists. It was strange. There weren't any rides. Like, what are you talking about? You went to Disneyland. It's mostly rides. Are we thinking of different Disneylands? Did you just get to the hotel and think that that was the park so you just stayed there and moped? Because everyone else seemed to be having a good time on the trip. And two, you ended up not using a lot of great material. Are you, are you trying to hurt me, Tony? Because this feels, you know, it feels malicious and targeted directly at me personally. What did Sabbath not use that Iomi thinks was great as opposed to the confused material to be found on bloody mob rules? Can you hum a few bars here, Tone Tone? Because some of us might like to hear that. Especially considering some of the greatest music to ever come from the genre of heavy metal comes from this album. In 1985, Dio even told Steve Newton, who makes a much better music journalist than he does a fig-filled cookie, Stick to interviews, Steve. That he felt Mob Rules was a better record than Heaven and Hell, and there are a lot of fans who agree with him. So then, Tony... Why so serious, Tony? But you know what? I might be looking at this whole thing the wrong way. How many times have you heard an artist say, I'm much happier making music the way I do now, and then you listen to that music and it just sucks a trillion llama dicks? Radiohead's one of my favorite bands and they've never been happy for a single moment of their miserable goddamn lives. Please, no one ever tell Tom York happy birthday and don't send him any cat videos. I need that pasty Linus looking wall-eyed limey sack of sad to stay sad in the studio so he doesn't start making reggae albums or something. Because when you hear some of the best tracks off of Mob Rules, it does not sound like music written by a happy person. It sounds like someone on the edge of something rather dire. Because, as the Joker reminds us, madness, or in this case, sadness, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push.
definitely stay sad. My fault. Carry on. Meanwhile, let's return to a familiar topic in this series, Ronnie James Dio and his uncanny gift of illuminating reality through the vehicle of his imagination. Learning what we have about Dio's penchant for using fantasy and mysticism as a kind of Trojan horse for deep truth, I want to read you some of the lyrics off of the third track on Mob Rules, The Sign of the Southern Cross, and let's see if we can get to the bottom of just what Dio's on about. It begins with something of a prologue that reads to me like Dio opening the track with instructions for how to hear it. Listen to this. If there isn't light when no one sees, then how can I know what you might believe? A story told that can't be real somehow must reflect the truth we feel, which could actually be instructions for a number of Dio's lyrics. Probably not Tarot Woman, but I'm assuming you knew that already. So the stage is now set. We are listening to a tale of unreality or fantasy that reflects the inner world of the writer. This is how he wrote Stargazer and A Light in the Black about his dissolving relationship with Richie Blackmore and the emergence of a newfound belief in himself. This is why he writes Neon Nights to open the first Sabbath record, a tale about an ancient vanguard from a forgotten time charging into the future to defend their beloved kingdom of metal. And so it is here. Dio introduces the setting as a mythological one located outside of time and place, existing both everywhere and nowhere within the mystical realm of the mind, or as he coins it, on a small world west of wonder, somewhere, nowhere. There's a rainbow that will shimmer when the summer falls. Uh-oh. Rainbows. That can't be good. But he continues, If an echo doesn't answer... When it hears a certain sound, then the beast is free to wander, but never seen around. And it's the sign of the Southern Cross. Okay, a lot to unpack there, but let's start with Echo. That character comes to us from the Roman poet Ovid. Echo was a nymph and a notorious chatterbox, cursed for all eternity for talking through all three hours of Schindler's List doomed with the inability to speak for herself and only to repeat the final words of the last phrases she had heard, giving her name to the audio effect we all now know so well. Well, well. Oh, hey girl, I was just talking about you. Less well-known is the nature of Echo's story as one of unrequited love and tragedy. Echo grew enamored from afar with a very pretty boy named Narcissus, as portrayed by Timothy Chalamet who, upon meeting Echo in the wilderness, rejected and humiliated her. <laughs> Get in line, chica. Echo's fellow nymphs then cursed Narcissus to fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water, where he slowly wasted away before speaking his final words, O oh, marvelous boy, I have loved you in vain. Farewell. Naturally, these became the final words of Echo as well, as her body soon faded, her bones turned to stone, and eventually all that remained of her immortal soul was the sound of her voice. And I would say that's a pretty interesting mythological reference to come from a professional vocalist. But the implication of the lyric is that Echo chooses not to answer, presumably the object of her affections, Narcissus, allowing the beast within her, the inner yearning of unrequited love, to wander free. The song is replete with images like those from the story of Echo, but notably, Dio is adapting the well-known myth to describe a very different outcome, principally the act of letting go. 
of releasing your private desires to pursue a path of freedom, or, as Dio later growls, reach above your dreams of pleasure, advising the listener to look beyond your own horizons and sail the ship of sighs. Okay, one more quick literary note here and I'll get back to shit that kicks ass. A sigh in classical literature is like someone holding a sign over their head with an arrow pointing down that reads, I love someone that I can't be with. Yes, it's a big sign, but you could get poster board fairly cheap in the Roman Empire at your local office despot. Wow, I am really circling the drain of my mental health these days, aren't I? It's like when you watch a movie now and a woman walks into the scene wearing sunglasses to cover a black eye. We all know what that means. It's a giant red flashing light in our culture that says domestic abuse victim, right? Shakespeare uses sighs and groans all the time to let the audience know that the central arc of this character's story will be about overcoming unrequited love in one way or another. So again, when Dio tells us to fade away and vanish into smoke, what he is advocating is that we let go of our obsessions and opt instead for a journey of independence, release all our wants and desires or pleasures because it's just not meant to be. And because our last thirst trap is over by the swamp plucking that one random beard hair that's growing way too close to their eye to make biological sense. But if you stay there, pining away for them as they pine away for themselves, you will never leave. And how do we know when it's time to leave? Well, luckily, there's a sign. And the Southern Cross isn't just any sign. It's an eternal sign in the night sky, specifically a constellation. Historically, Polynesian wayfinders used the Southern Cross as a way of navigating the oceans, sailing their own ship of size to seek out the new worlds of the Pacific. Eventually you just end up in San Diego, which is a real bummer, but it's probably a sweet ride up until then. So, do you remember the last time Dio started looking to the metaphorical stars in his lyrics? Yeah. I think what we may be hearing in the third track off of Mob Rules is Dio seeing the writing on the wall. His time with Black Sabbath, it's becoming increasingly clear to him, is drawing to a close. He desires something that, for reasons of ego quantified in the form of a dollar amount, doesn't desire him back. Which is where I think lyrics like, fade away, I can't accept it anymore, come from. This song has always sounded sad to me, but my God is it infinitely sadder now. However, unlike Stargazer, I'm not entirely sure that my reading of the lyrics to The Sign of the Southern Cross isn't broad conjecture. But there is a lot about this track that leads me to suspect that it might not be. It even foreshadows the darkness to come in falling off the edge of the world, when in the outro to the song, Dio employs a story that can't be real to reflect the truth he is currently feeling, declaring eight miles high, about to fall, and no one there to catch you. Look for the sign. And here it is, the song that I think marks the end of Black Sabbath as a consistently significant force in heavy metal, the original genre of music that they created roughly 11 years earlier, the sign of the Southern Cross. If there isn't light when no one sees, then how can I know what you might believe? 
every tongue that can't be real Somehow must reflect the truth we feel Yeah Fade away, fade away Vanish into small Fade away, fade away Break the crystal Are you happy now, Rob? Well, don't be. That only leads to reggae, and nothing good has ever come from reggae. But as I said before, Mob Rules was a total banger. It went to gold in the US, UK, and Canada. The record's advanced releases, including the title track, Turn Up the Night, and Voodoo all landed in the top 50 singles charts in the UK and US. Reviews were somewhat mixed, but mostly positive, except for yeah, say it with me, Rolling Stone, who gave the album an inexplicable one star out of five. 
with reviewer J.D. Considine saying, The reason that Mob Rules is terrible is teamwork, not just thinking up lame riffs and dumb lyrics, but also performing them as poorly as possible. Well, J.D., we don't happen to agree here, but that doesn't mean we have to be nasty or petulant to each other. I actually gained a lot of sympathy for you when I found out that J.D. stood for jaundiced dick. Sure, your parents hated you and rightly perceived that you had something really weird going on downstairs, but I, for one, don't hate you. I hate your nanoscopic mental capacity and the fact that you're at like a 10-year-old routinely deprived of oxygen for five-minute intervals since the hour of your birth, but I don't hate you. Actually, you know what? Scratch that. I do hate you. But unlike Jonky Dunk Considine, time has been very kind to mob rules. As Canadian journalist Martin Popoff... Oh, sorry. Melissa, would you mind? As Canadian journalist Martin Popoff said in 2021, although mob rules was well-received in its day, it came to be considered heaven and hell's slightly weaker cousin, but has risen in stature greatly over the years. Thank you, Melissa. And of course, Martin Popoff, you know, was a guest twice on Metal Chat with Melissa. My friend Melissa from the Metal Wishing Chat. Wishing you a happy new year. Thank you, Melissa. On this snowy Sunday. Thank the you. The clouds are out, and of course, everybody goes to Dunks yeah, to get their iced coffee. Yeah, iced coffee. We drink iced coffee all year round here. Yep, we don't yep. care. Thank, if it's thank you, Melissa. My friend Melissa from the Metal Chat podcast, everybody. Give it a listen. She's awesome. In fact, the two records were so well-received that Sabbath decided to release a live album of material recorded on tour in the cities of San Antonio, Dallas, and Seattle. Actually, I was at that Seattle show. I was two at the time, so I didn't fare that well in the pit. But if you ever see video footage, I'm the one who flashes Iomi their tits in the middle of NIB. I used to be one sexy baby, believe it or not. And you should not. But this is where those tiny cracks in band morale start to become the Amy Winehouse-sized cracks that would eventually split the band in two. At this point, Sabbath were taking separate cars to gigs with Vinnie Apice and Ronnie James Dio in one car and Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler in another, just on the wrong side of the road. When mixing sessions for the album began, Tony and Geezer didn't show up until days after the actual mixing was scheduled to begin. Ronnie and Vinny had been asking the sound engineer to hear some tracks and experiment with levels before the two guitarists arrive and they could start the mixing process as a group. And when Iommi finally did show up, he and Geezer thought the mix sounded different from day to day, and Iommi asked the sound engineer what was going on. In 2010, Iommi told Spinner Magazine the answer. The engineer said, I can't take this anymore. Ronnie's been coming in and adjusting everything. And then you lot come in and adjust it. And then he comes in and adjusts it again and I just don't know what to do. And we said, you're kidding. And we broke up because of that. And of course, it was all hearsay. And I don't really believe it now, but we did at the time. But what I didn't include in that quote was that the engineer was getting increasingly wasted during the mixing sessions and actually just fucking it up out of his own incompetent negligence. So thanks, nameless sound engineer who caused Black Sabbath to break up so we could cover for his own drunken dump fuckery. I hope you died of liver cancer. Whoa. Quinn, whoa, that was dark. <laughs> Save it for Jelly Dong Considine from Rolling Stone, bud. But when it comes to saying awful things, it was around that time that Iommi had started calling Dio Little Hitler behind his back. 
And it's a pretty good indicator that a relationship is coming to an end when one person starts to casually refer to the other as a guy who systematically murdered 11 million people in roughly four years. Plus, short jokes? Have you no decency, sir? So in November of 1982, Ronnie James Dio left Black Sabbath. And just before he walked out the door, he turned to Iommi and Butler and said, This is mine, so it's coming with me. Whereupon he picked up Vinnie Apse and started off, only to realize he couldn't physically do that, so he angrily hopped into the drummer's arms, who carried the front man out of the room like a baby, and that became Ronnie James Dio's preferred method of travel until his death in 2010. But we're not there yet. We have a B-side to get to on this episode, wherein we will discuss two albums filled with demons and tigers and Vivian Campbell. Oh my. Yes. Ronnie James Dio may have left the greatest heavy metal band of all time, but he is about to achieve the biggest success of his career by gathering around all the young ones, for they will make him strong. And without an established musical pedigree, where Dio has to fill in for the last guy, or one where he has to be careful not to overshadow the fragile ego of a fading rock star, Ronnie James Dio has a choice to make. What will be the defining sound of his own musical legacy? Will Dio follow Richie Blackmore into the gilded facades of pop rock? Or will he fall into the trap of making his own technical ecstasy, a creative clusterfuck of musical half-measures that leave him dangling precariously over the cliff of metal irrelevance? This is the moment that that teensy titan with a terrifying sound steps out from the shadows of the past and shows the world who he really is and has always been. The sound that you will soon hear is that of Ronnie James Dio coming home when we come back.